Welcome to the first episode of the Crashing in Potential podcast. Today, we are going to be reading the preface and chapter one up to page 14. Enjoy. G'day, folks. Welcome to the Crashing in a Potential podcast. For the next little while, we're going to be talking about resilience. That is getting back up after you have been knocked down. My name is Scott B. Harrison. I'm the author of the book, Crashing in the Potential, Living with My Injured Brain. It's a memoir that I have written and published that outlines my story of resilience after a major motorbike accident that came very close to killing me. This podcast is designed to take what's inside of me and bring it out so that you can feel motivated to crash into your own potential. Brace yourself because the podcast is about to start. Welcome to the first episode of Crashing Into Potential. First off, I would just like to show my gratitude for you taking the time out of your day to listen to what I have to say. Time is the most precious resource that we can never get back. So I appreciate you spending your most valuable resource listening to me speak. So thanks. Now, initially, this podcast is just going to be me reading the book to you. And in the future, um, I will be taking a bit of time and we might talk about the process of writing the book, the process of publishing the book. But initially, to start with, I'm just going to read you the book so that you can learn my story. Before I start, I just want to quickly talk to you about why I'm reading this book out aloud and what this, what this will mean to me in my life. Now, a quick side note that is if, if you don't, uh, if you are a good reader, if you're a competent reader, this podcast may not be as exciting for you uh, as other people that aren't competent readers because my reading is very, very slow and it's, it's not as, well, I'm a 35-year-old person and my reading should be a lot, lot better. Now there's a few uh, there's a few reasons for this, but the biggest reason is that I never read growing up. I never read growing up. I hated reading, and I can honestly count on my hand, and that that's one hand, how many books before I started writing this book, Crashing the Potential. I could count on my hand, one hand, how many books I had read in my entire life. So I was not a, a reader and then I then I went and wrote the book and I started writing the book and that was when I started reading. So that was in 2016. Now I know how to read, that's not the problem. The problem is the speed of my reading and getting all the words muddled up. I mean I've read, I've always read the newspaper and I've, 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 I've read everything that I've read online um, and all the social media and everything. So reading is... It's doable for me. It's just that I cannot read fast and I cannot read out loud fast. Now, a goal that I've set for myself has to be is to become a better reader. Now, that's not necessarily reading to myself because uh, you can you can skip words when you're reading to yourself. Although I'm not the best skim reader and I am a very very slow reader even to myself. But this is reading out aloud. 
You know, I often watch the news or I watch a, a, a TV show where somebody's reading from teleprompter and I think to myself that I probably wouldn't be able to do that job because I cannot read out loud and I sometimes think to myself, imagine myself in front of the camera reading out loud. And it just, it scares me, it scares the, uh, scares the pants off me. So that's why I am reading this book to you. To help you keep track of where I am in the book, I will be reading the page numbers when I can remember to read the page numbers. I'll be reading the page numbers and the chapter numbers to help you read along and help you follow along with the book. So without further ado, let's get started. So I've opened up the book and I'm going to read uh, the imprint page or a little bit of it uh, and that's only because it's got all of my social media information on it uh, and everything you can find online. So my website and my blog are at www.scottbharris.com.au. My Facebook page is at The Injured Brain. My Twitter is at The Injured Brain. My LinkedIn is www.linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash The Injured Brain. And my Instagram is at The Injured Brain. So everything is The Injured Brain. This is the dedication. I dedicate this book to the staff at Rewired Hand Therapy and the staff at Epworth Rehabilitation Centre, to the Transport Accident Commission, TAC in Victoria, and to my family. The support my mother, Deborah, and father, Victor, have given me through this journey have been a solid foundation for all my achievements. I don't know where I'd be without you, so thanks, guys. I love you, and I owe you more than you could ever imagine. My family, that is although I still have a soft spot in my heart for the rest of you folk too. Uh, the foreword, I'm not going to read the foreword. It is written by John Sylvester. John Sylvester is a writer for The Age newspaper. Uh, he's also my uncle, Uncle John. So shout out to you, John, if you're listening. Page number one. This is the preface and it's called Resilience. At, every, at the start of every chapter, I have a quote. So the quote for this chapter is, Resilient in the face of adversity. What does that really mean? Resilient. 1. Springing back, rebounding. 2. Returning to original form or position after being bent, compressed or stretched. 3. Readily recovering as a form of sickness, depression or the like. Adversity. 1. Adverse fortune or fate, a condition mar marked by misfortune, calamity or distress. 2. An unfortunate event or circumstance. This was from the Macquarie Dictionary. Resilient in the face of adversity means that you are capable of recovering from misfortune. Being resilient is different for everyone. It doesn't mean that you have to overcome the type of adversity I have. But you can get through whatever tough times you're faced with in your life. You may not know it yet, and it may be hard to see right now, but believe me when I say that you are capable of getting through these tough times. In this, in this book, you will discover what I have learned along my journey, and perhaps you can use some of these tools in your own life. 
when you need them. I've spent the last nine years learning from the masters in this field, my therapists. This is page two. Some of my therapists have been helping others overcome adversity for 40 plus years. So when they they speak, I listen. In 2008, I started the most amazing journey of my life, a journey to re-engage with a society and with my body and brain. For 23 years, I've been living a full I've been living full of life, enjoying the freedom of a world that I lived in, waking waking up every morning with an able body. Until one day when everything changed and I no longer lived in a world that could give me this kind of flexibility. The tattoo on my back reads 15/11/2008. This marks the day I was involved in an accident that nearly took my life. This accident made me who I am today and I would not change it for the world. I don't believe that everything happens for a reason. Instead, I believe that everything in life is about the reasons we give to these happenings. I write about the reasons I have given to the happenings in my life in the pages of this book. This journey has seen me go from the very top of what I could hope for in life when I was having so much fun to the very bottom which had me fighting my way through depression as a result of a traumatic event. I've, they've, I've had days that, I've did not wa- that I did not want to end, and I've had days where ending it would have been the easy way out. Throughout this time, I've learned a lot about myself, a lot about my own capabilities, and a lot about the way in which humans realise their greatest achievements. I believe this all comes down to the goals that we set and the goals that we achieve. I was forced to set goals when I was at the bottom. The magic that has come from this has been incredible. Goals have been the backbone to my successful recovery and I owe a lot to the people that brought them into my life. Goals have essentially been the roadmap to my recovery. They have given me a path to follow for the last nine years. Part one of this book is about what happened to me from the day of the accident, from the day of the accident on. You will journey with me through all of the turmoil that my life has thrown at me. You will see what I went through and the struggles I've faced, only to come out the other side with a greater appreciation for life and the people around me. Part two of this, part two will show you through my own experience what what can be what can mm, sorry part 2 will show you through my own experience what you can do when you believe in yourself if you come to the end of this book and you find yourself looking at the brighter side of a once darkened existence i would love to connect with you you'll find my details at the front of the book which i've already read out to you just a side note Uh, I don't want this book to be just a story. I want this book to be a book of inspiration. I want you to go out and, and achieve great things in your own life because I believe that we are all capable of doing this. Remember, somebody's remember as somebody wise once said, falling down is an accident, staying down is a choice. Part one, meeting adversity head on. This is page number seven. Chapter one, the accident. The quote is, shit happens, Harris family. 
I had a great childhood. Some would, say, some would say I was an active kid. I spent a lot of time outside running around. Any sport I played, I loved. Until I wasn't the best and then I'd quit. At one point I was kayaking, which I really enjoyed because that was something I was good at. My, bro- my brother Brett and I would be up at 6am in the middle of winter out on the river paddling. We both loved it. When I went to the Australian Championships, I won one gold, two silver and a bronze medal. After that, I took six months off due to injury and bad health. When I returned to the sport, I was no longer winning. This was the early 90s and by the noughties, uh, I'd given up. I'd quit because I wasn't the best anymore. Now, some of the guys that I paddle with have been and competed in the Olympics. It's easy to look back at life and think, what if? This question has crossed my mind so many times in the last decade. I've spent hours thinking about it. The conclusion I always come to is that I can't do anything about it. So just move on. I can't change the past, so just move on. I got my first job when I was 15, flipping burgers and making coffee at the local McDonald's. In my opinion, this was the best job around because not only did I get to work with 120 other kids my own age, I also made some lifelong friends. This is page 8. Okay, granted, the work was hot and greasy, and I hated getting up at 4.30am when I had set up in the morning. But it taught me what real work was, and that in itself looks unbelievable on a resume. After five years, it was time to move on. But when I finished my tertiary education, I was jobless and I had no direction. I had done an an advanced diploma in digital graphics at JMC Academy in Melbourne. My my big dream was to one day day work for the marvellous Pixar Studios in California. I could imagine being part of the next big Toy Story flick. That was until I discovered this was a dream shared by literally thousands and thousands of other people. With a fixed mindset, I believed that the competition was too great, so I gave up. I lost interest. Being lost, I was starting to wonder where my life was going to go from here. I found a job working in a local cafe serving ice cream at Melbourne's Federation Square. But when the winter came around, I no longer had any income because winter in Melbourne is cold, miserable, and no one is on the search for ice cream. After six months, I was jobless again until my brother came to the rescue. He was an electrician and his boss was on holidays. They were in need of some hands and any hands would do. So I put one up to help out. I fell in love with with it. I worked for three weeks and earned more money than I had ever seen in one paycheck. So when the boss returned, I asked him if I could do an apprenticeship. I started working full-time all over Melbourne, from high-rises to industrial estates to private homes. We worked in many of the manholes on the side of the road, connecting fibre networks across the city of Melbourne, sometimes Sydney and even Perth. We did a lot of work in new and old buildings, including old schools from the 1860s. 
You can imagine how fascinated a young man like myself was climbing through roofs and under buildings that were over 150 years old. My job was so diverse that I could be working in an old building on Monday, building a new factory on Tuesday, and then every Wednesday I, I headed off to trade school with an awesome group of boys. This is page nine. We will put our feet up and have, have some fun. Our class was jam-packed full of young men all full of testosterone having a day off work together. It wasn't all that productive, but I loved it. Thursday would be under, under the city working and Friday would knock off early. Knocking off required going back to the factory in Altham and having a beer to recap the week. My life consisted of no responsibilities, no worries and all the freedom in the world. At the time, I liked the thought of working for the man and not taking life too seriously. Oh, did I mention RDOs? Yes, every second Monday was a rusted day off just because it was fair. Well, that is what the trade union argued anyway. This was 2006 and by 2008, I was loving what I did every day of the week. I loved my work because I made some great mates I made some great money and I had the weekends to do what I wanted. At that stage, I, I, at that stage, I started, started to think a bit about what would happen after I finished my apprenticeship, which was the first grown-up thought of my life. I considered travelling overseas and working abroad for a year, as my sister had done in the years before. It was coming up to the Spring Racing Carnival, Melbourne's premier horse racing event, which I had attended the past two years. That year, I went along with a great group of people. We had been mates for years and I had the best time I had ever had at the carnival. I remember that day so clearly. I got up super early, just as I had on the first day of the carnival in the past. I woke up before my alarm and felt great from an early night I had prepared myself. If the day turned out anything to be like the previous years, it was going to be a big event. I jumped out of the shower as quick as I jumped in. Grabbing my race attire, I got in the car ready to go, all in the space of about 10 minutes. I had a tendency to get overexcited about, about things that I knew would be fun. That's just who I was. I was the first to arrive at my brother's house and he had a beer waiting for me. Brett was already dressed in his suit and was just as excited as I was. I changed into my costume, a perfectly tailored grey suit from Thailand. I put on my new Prada sunglasses and a few sprays of cologne, looked in the mirror and quietly thought, it's going to be a good day. You're looking okay today, mate. This is page 10. I went out to the kitchen and said to everyone, let the games begin. While I had been obsessing with myself over in the mirror, Anne and Celeste had arrived to join the party. Shortly after, Dave, Chris, Trav, and Oki and Kate walked in and really got the ball rolling. It was 7.30am at this stage, which was rather early to be starting the antics, but to get a good spot on the grass, smack bang in the middle of the riffraff, you had to be the, you had to be early. On top of that, we still had to find a cab and make our way there. 
Really, the reason we start we started so early was because we all knew what the day had in store for us. And this was the first time in three years I I was going there as a single man, with no one looking over my shoulder and no one to answer to. I was prepared to get loose. Beep beep. Everyone in the cab's here was the call to head off to the Flemington race course. We got there just after the gates opened and made our way to the 300 metre mark at the end of the general admission on the home straight. The grass looked so fresh and the people looked so clean, but you knew that in just six hours time the bomb would go off and everyone would would leave the venue looking like it they'd been there there had been a meltdown. It did every other year what would have changed nothing. To our delightful surprise, solid tables had been installed on the grass that year and we were lucky enough to snag one and enough chairs. It was still a few hours until the first race, but we didn't really care because we were there in our position ready ready to take on the day. Once the bar opened, things got a bit blurry in my mind as to what actually followed. My only memories of that day were the photos that were taken and the fact that I knew I had fun. I knew I was with great friends and I knew that my wallet was crying due to the weight loss. I was hoping for another box trifecta like I had won the previous year. In my total gambling career, I was definitely up as I had won $1,000 the year before and I'd never spent that much on gambling in my life. I really wasn't a big gambler. The spring racing carnival was the only time that my wallet came out to gamble. I knew that it was dead money as soon as it touched the bookie's hand. On top of on top, on top of the gambling, which wasn't all that much in the end, there was the cost of drinks that seemed to go up and up and up each year. I guess that's just the price you pay to participate in one of Melbourne's great festivals. This is page 11. In what seemed like a millisecond, I was in a hospital bed a month later, looking up at Jacqueline, who was my brother's girlfriend at the time, who was playing Here Comes the Aeroplane with a spoonful of slop. Confused? So was I. A couple of weeks after the spring racing carnival, I had a motorbike accident that resulted in the worst day of my life. This was the absolute hardest time for everyone in my family too. They are forever haunted by the 16 days I was in a coma, unsure whether I would wake up, let alone be able to live a normal life again. For my part, I was not consciously present, so I had no memory of it at all. Now, I'm going to go out of the book here and just talk about quickly the feeling of of the coma. And um, this was the most, this was the, honestly the most surreal feeling I've, I've felt ever. It really honestly felt like it was a click of somebody's fingers and I was, one minute I was at the carnival and the next minute I was in a hospital bed and it was a month later. It was, it was just, it was bizarre. And I, th- I guess you could probably um, compare it to going into, uh, into, into surgery when you go under anaesthetic. When you when they say you know counts to ten one two three four four and you're dead, and then all of a sudden you wake up and you're in your hospital bed. Well, that was kind of like what it was. But my operation went for four weeks. Um, I was unconscious for four weeks, so it was just really weird. And 
it kind of got I've thought about it so many times over the years. This is exactly what it would feel like to to die, to pass away. The lights would just go out. And and then this this will get you thinking. When the lights do go out, where does your mind go? Just think about that for a bit. Okay, back to the book. I was with my mates on Saturday the 15th of November 2008 riding my dirt bike on a property in Smith Gully in Melbourne's outer northeast. It was at the very end of the day when I decided to go down to go down for one last lap of the paddock before heading back to the house. I was going to meet another group of mates for some springtime fun in the sun around the pool. I got to the end of the paddock, turned around and rode back up the hill. But it had a bend in the track before opening up to a landing that was about 100 metres long. I was going fast. If you've ever ridden a motorbike, you'll know the rush I would have been feeling at the time. The best way to start the hill was to give it full throttle and keep it pinned all the way to the top because at the top was my best chance to pop on the back wheel and nearly wet my pants with excitement. We had touched on the idea of riding down another track on the hill to avoid having an accident, but this wasn't a rule and it wasn't set in stone. I chose the one with the bend. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time on the wrong day of my life. I ran into my mate who was riding down the same track at the same second that I was. Boom. Lights out. Hindsight's a bitch when it wants to be. This is page 12. The carnage looked like two angry wildebeests had fought in the wild, except our wildebeests were two KDM 450 dirt bikes. Another mate was following behind me and saw everything happen. He said it was like watching a finishing move in, in Mortal Kombat in slow motion. He could see what was happening, but was helpless to stop it. We hit each other head on. And when I say head on, I mean head on. Our front wheels aligned perfectly. You can see the imprint of his wheel in mine. The mate following following threw his bike down and ran to help. He knew that both of us were in serious trouble. He was shouting in my face, Scott, 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 no response. He ran over to my mate who did and did the same thing. Like a sequel in a horror movie. Neither of us were responsive. Another two mates, another two mates, brothers, who lived on the property, finally caught up with us. The first guy arrived and felt felt his heart sink because he for a split second he thought it was his own brother who was in trouble and on the ground and not moving. From the time of the accident until the air ambulance flew me away, everything ran like clockwork. One mate, Dave, rode straight to the house to call triple zero. His his brother, Ryan, rode to the front gate. And our other mates stayed with the two of us to make sure that we were still breathing. There were, five of us, there were five of us riding that day and two of our lives depended on the teamwork of the other three. I am so grateful that I had the mates I that I had mates with me. And I'm really proud of the teamwork. That they, were, that they put in that day. Sam, the mate that I hit, 
stood up at one point, took one step and hit the deck. Now, just a quick side note is that Sam is not his real name, but for privacy reasons, uh, we've kept his name out of it and we have decided to call him Sam. He was extremely lucky because unknown to anyone, he had broken his neck. Um, a few, a few, sh- a few more steps could have left him bound to a wheelchair for the rest of his existence on Earth. I, contrary to popular belief, was the luckiest at the time because I was knocked out cold. I didn't budge. With the state my neck was in, any slight movement could have ha- could have had me writing this book from a voice-activated dictaphone. The ambulance arrived within 15 minutes only to find there was no way to drive down through the goat's track uh, from where they were to the other, other end of the property. Right then, another star moved into alignment. Out of four ambulance helicopters that operate in the whole state of Victoria, the two that were close enough were told to turn around and come to our aid. This is page 13. This was perfect because time was definitely not on our side. It took them only 20 minutes to get there, which, if you think about it, is amazing because there, because there are only four helicopters covering 237,629 square kilometres of land in Victoria. To put that into perspective, that's nearly England, Ireland and Switzerland combined. Once they had landed, it was time to remove my helmet which was the only thing holding my skull together and stopping it from exploding. I still have the helmet with a coating of crusty blood on the inside. It's a token from God on a day in history that could have eat, could have resulted in many lives destroyed. A quick uh, side note is that that helmet is now on display at the Banyul Nilambic Tech School. Uh, they're doing a... They're doing a program that is about uh, about safety equipment for motorbikes and I have offered to give them my helmet to put on display. There are many, many people that saved my life that day. Four paramedics, four police, many doctors, nurses, dental surgeons, neurosurgeons, neurologists, radiologists and a whole plastic teams. The list goes on. But the guys I truly owe my life to on that dark but sunny spring day were my mates. The boys that were there with Sam and me came together and put in some pretty amazing teamwork and for that I'm truly grateful. The accident wasn't just brutal on me. Sam had intense damage, intense damage to his body too. His injuries included several fractured vertebrae and bones, a punctured lung, lacerations and dislocated knee. He experienced severe blood loss resulting in seven blood transfusions. Sam has also been recovering both mentally and physically from the accident and has since changed his career path. The accident made him realise how vulnerable and fragile life is and he no longer wanted to waste his time doing anything that didn't make him happy. He decided his passion was flying aircraft, so he got his pilot's license and now flies planes for a living. How cool is that? So that's the end of chapter one, and I'm going to stop there. Uh, We are now on page 16 to start chapter two. Uh, I hope that me reading this book out wasn't too painful to you. Uh, And I noticed noticed that as I was reading, you wouldn't be able to tell 
because I've edited uh, I've edited it all. Uh, but after about two or three pages, my brain just starts to lose concentration, and I just my words were going haywire. So I'd have to take a break, get a drink, and then start back again. Uh, it was really frustrating. But we'll see. We'll see how we go by the end of the book. Hopefully. This um, this this uh, this process of reading out aloud is a little bit better, and I'll uh, be able to <laughs> maybe one day read off a teleprompter. Who knows? See you back here next week when I will be reading chapter two. Chapter two, just so you know, is called "Landing in Hospital." So we'll see what happens when I land in hospital. See you next week, guys. So that's it for today. If you liked what you heard, hit the subscribe button so you do not miss an episode. Better still, hit the subscribe button and leave a review. See you in the next episode.